This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. This is Henry Jenkins. I'm uh, the director of the Comparative Media Studies Program, which I think everyone in the room knows. And I'm happy to welcome you to today's colloquium, uh, which is being run by Chris Boibel, uh, who uh, is the manager of the Multimedia Development and MIT's Academic Media Production Services, better known as AMPS. His films include Red Betsy and Containment. Uh, And we will hear, I'm told, as this goes along, from uh, some other experts on the work that's going on uh, through that project. Assuming we have a good internet connection. Okay. So I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Henry. So um, uh, as Henry said, I'm Chris Babel, and I'm the manager of multimedia development here, which is sort of a vague title, uh, but it means that I get to uh, sort of look at a lot of interesting things, get involved in a lot of interesting projects, both uh, from a content point of view and uh, technologically. And uh, one other person who's in the room that uh, we may hear from is Larry Gallagher, who's the uh, director of MIT Video Productions and uh, Digital Technologies. And Larry was instrumental in uh, getting uh, ZigZag off the ground last spring and in basically bringing the whole idea of video podcasting to MIT. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of how that happened, and I'm hoping Larry will uh, assist us because he is sort of the person to talk about that. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll basically cover uh, a few different things. I'm going to talk a little bit about what is podcasting, and I'm sure most of you know what podcasting is, and most of you probably can give a better definition than I can. Uh, but there may be some people who uh, would like to sort of start at the beginning, so I will do that. Uh, and we're going to talk about exactly what is ZigZag, and uh, we'll look at some clips of ZigZag. How did it get started, as I mentioned? And also, and most interestingly, where might it go here at MIT and beyond? Uh, you know, we're going to talk about why, do, why would MIT get into podcasting and what is the future here? And then the final thing, which of course is, uh, we'll probably be touching on all throughout it, is, you know, is podcasting really such a big deal? Um, you know, I think in 2005, the, uh, the Oxford American Dictionary named podcasting the word of the year. And anytime I hear something like that, I go, eh, you know, it's buzz, it's not really that, you know, it's hype, is it really all it's cracked up to be? And, you know, I think, I think podcasting is sort of a big deal, and we'll talk about why that is. And I'm going to try to contextualize it in, in my background as a filmmaker and as someone who has made video for the web for a number of years, uh, but has only recently started working on something that you would literally call a podcast. Um, but anyway, so first, um, just a few more words about myself. Um, my, uh, my name is Chris Babel, as Henry said, and um, my background is film and video, film and video production. I, I uh, am a graduate of NYU's uh, graduate film program, and uh, I think of myself as really a content producer, a filmmaker, a video maker. Uh, I've done a couple of feature films, as Henry mentioned. I've done a lot of uh, commercial work, uh, been producing 
uh, web video web video spots for a number of years uh, for companies like IBM and um, other technology companies. And um, so I look at this really from the perspective of a content producer, both as an independent filmmaker, which, which uh, I've spent a number of years uh, being and pursuing, and also as someone who just works in the industry. Um, I'm not really a high technologist. If you want to configure your server to become a podcaster, you wouldn't want to call me. Um, so I am going to provide just a very, very sort of sketchy overview of, of what, the, what podcasting is technologically. And uh, there are probably, again, people in this room who could provide a better uh, discussion of that than I can. Um, and I'm also, I'm not really, um, you know, uh, a media prognosticator either. I mean, the, I think this is titled something like Reinventing the Future of Television or something very grand like that. And somebody, when, I, when they walked into the room just a few minutes ago, said, oh, is this the, the colloquium on, on why television is dead? And, and you know, I'm not going to be predicting the demise of television anytime soon. Um, maybe, it, maybe it is dead as we know it. I don't know. But um, that's not really how I look at things. I'm looking at some, things like podcasting as a tool for content producers, for media creators. And I think it's a very, very powerful tool. And uh, for a lot of reasons, far more powerful than web video in the generic sense of, of web video. And we'll talk about that. Um, but anyway, so, so what is podcasting? And basically, um, podcasting is very, very simply just a distribution method. It's a method of distributing multimedia files over the internet. And uh, it's not the only method, but it's a particularly simple and easy method for doing it. Uh, and, and basically, uh, it depends on something called web syndication. And the idea of, of web syndication is just that uh, it's a process by which one website makes content available to another website. So this website over here says, you know, oh, go look over here, and you'll see something really interesting. And uh, what that means is that you can subscribe to a podcast. You can tell your, your, you know, your iPod, you can tell iTunes to continually go look to see if there's new content on, on a website that you have subscribed to. And you can play a podcast on multiple devices, not just a computer, but obviously most famously an iPod, other uh, PDAs, other displays. Um, so it's, it's a very, very portable medium. And that's one of the most powerful things about it. Uh, in fact, the three, the three things that are, I think are most powerful about it are, are, first of all, the idea that you can subscribe to it. Uh, if you're just talking about video on the web in general, uh, you may find something really, really interesting. Uh, but then if that content is updated later, you have to go back to the same page, find it again, watch it again, and, and, and think to do it. You know, if, if something's coming out once a week and you don't think to go look for it, you're not going to see it, obviously. With, with, once you've clicked subscribe to a podcast, it gets automatically downloaded to iTunes, to your iPod, to whatever you're watching it on. And you, you keep, it keeps pushing content at you. So it's, uh, it makes it very, very easy for people to find your content. And of course, when you've got millions and millions and even billions of web pages out there, and potentially millions of, of pieces of content, 
anything that it makes it easy for people to find you is really, really, really important. And that's one of the big things about podcasting. Uh, the other thing that, that I think is really uh, worth mentioning is that it's asynchronous delivery of video as opposed to streaming video. And what that means is that you download it and watch it. And you, the process of watching or the experience of watching it can be very, very similar to streaming video because if you're on a fast connection, you'd hit play and it starts playing. But it's downloading, it's not streaming. In other words, that your browser is not going, give me a frame of video. Uh, now give me another frame of video. And you're, now give me another frame of video. Instead, it's downloading and you actually have that piece of content and you can watch it at your leisure. Um, what that means, first of all, is that it's very easy to move it from device to device, like to your iPod or whatever. But even more interestingly for the small-time producer, uh, and, you know, I mean, MIT is a small-time producer in the world we're talking about. Uh, you don't need massive, massive server power in order to keep up with your, your audience. Uh, with streaming video, uh, and I have produced a number of uh, things that were designed to stream over the web, especially a few years ago, um, you know, all, it's, all, it's horrible if you're, if you're successful because if you create... Uh, an amazing piece of content that suddenly every high school kid in America wants to watch. They all go to your site all at once and your server crashes. So you have to spend a lot of money upgrading and upgrading and upgrading and upgrading and the more successful you become, the more money you have to spend. And that's a terrible model for any kind of distributor. It's a terrible model even for, for big corporations, but it's particularly a horrible model for media makers. So and, and small-time media makers. And, you know, as I said, within the context that we're talking about, MIT is a small-time media maker. Uh, so the fact that it's asynchronous delivery gets you out from under that. And that's a really, really big deal uh, because all of a sudden you've got this technology that allows you to... Uh, it allows people to find your content very easily and to, once they found it, keep getting more content. And number two, it gets you out from under this problem of, you know, spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars continually upgrading your system in order to keep up with demand should you actually have any kind of content that people want to watch. So those are kind of the core things that I think make podcasting really, really interesting and actually uh, important. And also the idea, uh, the third one, that you can play it on any device uh, so that you're not just sitting at your, your desktop machine or your laptop watching streaming video over a browser in kind of a traditional way. You know, you can play it on the iPod, and there are uh, many, many people and many, many companies out there continually invent, trying to in, invent ways for you to play it on new devices, obviously cell phones, uh, other PDAs, all sorts of things. So podcasts are portable. They're easy to, uh, easy to find. They get you out from under this a problem of having to have a huge infrastructure, uh, and they're really, really easy to uh, distribute as well. That's the, that's the other thing. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of skill to publish a podcast. So that's what podcasting is, and that's why kind of from my very sort of broad uh, perspective, it's, it's actually kind of exciting and, and interesting. Um, so I thought I would talk a little bit about ZigZag, which is the uh, podcast that uh, MIT is producing. If I can get my laptop to come on. Um, and 
Zigzag was a was a, is a program that began production here last spring. And Larry, please jump in at any moment. Um, February. February. It began uh, production in February of last year of this year, uh, last semester. And it basically uh, was something that quite appropriately uh, wasn't didn't come from on high. It didn't come from the top echelons of of the administration. It wasn't sort of a mandate to go out and communicate in a new way, uh, in the way, you know, like some kind of like newsletter or uh, package piece of information might might happen. It basically began as an idea uh, that Larry, uh, who's sitting here, and uh, Jeff Silva, uh, a producer who used to be in our group uh, until recently, had. Uh, They were aware of the technology. They were aware of podcasting, which um, really, really kind of started to hit hit its stride in about 2004, I think. Uh, and they saw this as a great opportunity for MIT uh, and a great opportunity to do something really interesting on a really a shoestring because it wasn't uh, supported in a really heavy way financially by the institution. Uh, and it was, it was just a way, first of all, f- to uh, communicate to alumni, to communicate to the MIT community, to communicate to students and prospective students, but also... Uh, and this is really interesting, I think, hopefully, and, and you know, I, I hope that this is interesting for this group in particular here in this room, a forum, a forum uh, for expression for the community at large. And I'm going to play a couple of clips from, from ZigZag, including one that's, that was produced by students, and we just ran, because one of, the nice, one of the ideas of ZigZag is that it's eclectic, and it's not just content that we produce, although uh, a lot of it is. Uh, it's not just content that... Uh, is is uh, an important story uh, for the administration or an important story for the institu- institution, although some of it is. But it's also a forum, ideally, uh, for student work, uh, for experimentation, uh, and we want to be as broadly inclusive as we possibly can be. So, um, Larry? I'm looking over to Larry because uh, I'm telling his part of the story here. Um, so, so that's, the, uh, that's the, the basic background on ZigZag. It's still run pretty much on a shoestring. And again, that's really what's really powerful about uh, podcasting. You don't have to have a room full of uh, air-conditioned servers to, to run it. Uh, you can do the production and post-production really cheaply, and it's really, really easy to publish it. So uh, we aren't doing it with a huge amount of support. It's not like there's a major initiative here to... Uh, you know, bring MIT to the masses via podcasting. It's done on a very small kind of uh, support level. And, and I think that's one of the really, really interesting things, that, that that kind of initiative is possible with this particular uh, technology, this particular distribution mode. We okay, Henry? We're fine. Okay. <laughs> we the battle over the bureaucracy and we won. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Okay. Um, so... Let me just show you a, a, a little bit about ZigZag. We'll uh, go online. Um, so first of all, in order to get to ZigZag, uh, you just go to the main page, and here under Education, you click Podcasts, and it comes up. And you see we're on Episode 10. Uh, we've been producing one every two to three weeks. Uh, we were down to one a month during the summer. This one came out. Uh, as you can see on the, uh, the 20th, so about a week ago. And um, 
this is not the whole page. Go down. You can see you can subscribe just by clicking subscribe. And once you've clicked subscribe, uh, assuming that you have iTunes, you can you will automatically get every single zigzag episode that we produce until you unsubscribe. And that's one of the great things about, about podcasting. You never have to come back to this page. You never even have to go to MIT.edu or anything. It's just going to come to you and, you, and you can watch it at your leisure whenever you want. You can watch them a month later, a month after they come out. You can watch them the, the, the hour they come out. It's completely up to you. But anyway, so this is the, uh, this is the zigzag page uh, off of uh, MIT.edu. But um, I, I'm going to play a few clips, and I'm actually going to play them off of iTunes. So, you know, I, uh, uh, I subscribe. I'm a subscriber, believe it or not. Um, and I've downloaded every episode, except for the hard-to-get episode one, which has disappeared somehow off of our feed, uh, although I have it on uh, my other laptop. But anyway, so, you know, here we are in, uh, here we are in iTunes, and we've got episodes two through ten. Uh, one is kind of the bootleg episode, I guess. And... Um, I'll just play, a, I thought I, I, I picked two or three stories to play just to give you a sense of it. Um, and, you know, again, the, the, the thing here, the message here, the interesting thing here, I mean, it's not so much the video. It's not so much, you know, that it's not like this is a groundbreaking form in and of itself. I mean, it's basically a video news magazine. And the hosts, uh, there are two hosts, they work here on campus. You know, they're good, but they're not... Uh, Professionals, uh, they do a very they do a very nice job, but but this the form is going to be very familiar to you. Uh, it's little one two minute stories about something going on. Uh, as I said, some of it is produced by students, uh, but some of it is is uh, you know just kind of coverage of what's happening on campus. So it's not that 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 this is so groundbreaking in terms of video, but what's interesting about it is that we can produce it for virtually nothing, put it on the web, distribute it, and make it available globally. Um, when I was in Norway this summer, uh, you know, I watched episode eight in my hotel room in, in Oslo on a really fast wireless connection, and you know, it was easier to watch it there than, than on campus here sometimes. Coming to you from the Wood Sailing Pavilion at MIT, my name is Marsha Bolton, and this is ZigZag. Summer break is winding down, and the class of 2010 will soon be arriving on campus. But there's still plenty of time to enjoy the New England weather with a trip to the beach or a sail on the Charles. The summer is also a time when MIT hosts students from the local community and from around the world in pursuit of challenging educational opportunities. Building exotic alternative fuel vehicles, playing Quidditch with underwater ROVs, and doing graduate-level research as an undergrad are just some of the answers you'll find here to the age-old question, what did you do on your summer vacation? For one international group, the summer of 2006 provided an opportunity to make a real difference as they gathered at MIT for the Vehicle Design Summit, an event conceived and organized by students. Vehicle Design Summit uh, consists of students from 13 countries, about 20 universities. We had four vehicle teams that each designed and built from scratch a complete 
vehicle that carried either one or two passengers and would really make a positive impact on the issue of commuter commuter travel. We're doing a ground-up reanalysis of everything you find in a car. We're trying to build a two-seater uh, commuter car. I, I really enjoyed designing things and this thing, this, uh, this event is really full of design. This isn't, you know, it's not for fun. It's not for a competition that ends and we're done. We are trying to do something very real, very serious, and have an impact on the world right now. One of the cars we made, the AHPV, assisted human-powered vehicle. So maybe if, if they're part of the power source, if they need to pedal in order to move the car, in addition to having a battery pack and an electric motor, that was, that was kind of the key tenet. We also made a biofuels car, and that team was very interested in how do you run a car in vegetable oil, uh, SVO, or straight vegetable oil. It has four wheels and two passengers, and they made a steel space frame. We also made a fuel cell electric hybrid. It's, it's predominantly an electric three-wheeled electric with two passengers, and our other car is called Pulse, meaning it was supposed to be the pulse of the city, kind of a commuter concept that just has one person, and was just to show, here's what, if you were commuting by yourself, here's what your car might look like if it was all electric. <laughs> The biggest priorities of our work are to get students together and show that really passionate people can do a lot and that an issue like global warming is really not ephemeral even though it's in many different realms and many different markets there are ways of kind of chipping away at it little by little. If you've spent any time around MIT this summer, you've probably noticed crowds of students a little younger than your average undergrad. They're participants in the School of Engineering's Engineering Outreach Programs. The Office of Engineering Outreach Programs currently has three major programs in the so anyway, um, one thing that was interesting about that story is that that uh, got a lot of media attention. There were uh, a lot of camera crews covering this. Uh, the Discovery Channel was there for days on end shooting uh, a, a whole series, I think, that is going to be on uh, later this year. There was a lot of uh, media, a lot of news. Um, you know, sometimes we were one of, like, four camera crews there. Uh, but, you know, our story came out a couple days after the thing was over and the other people are still editing theirs and, you know, still working on it. So uh, it's, again, you know, the, what you have to invest in, in, uh, in the stories uh, and, you know, what you have to invest in getting them out there, even more importantly, is radically different. And uh, it's kind of, that's kind of a major shift in, uh, in how you communicate or how you can communicate. Uh, I also wanted to show, uh, I, th I mentioned that there's a, uh, there was a student-produced piece that is, is interesting, and this will give you, again, a sense of uh, how, you know, we, there are a lot of different voices. We want to be as eclectic as we possibly can be. A couple of episodes back, ZigZag went around campus asking students about their plans for spring break. Now that they've returned, we thought it might be nice to hear about some of those experiences. Juniors Adam Love and John Gloa traveled to Paris, Amsterdam, and Berlin for their spring break, teaming up on a collaborative art project based on their journey. Here now is that short film that they produced especially for ZigZag. Europe folds around Amsterdam, but where that battered-worn crease reaches its peak cannot be said. Trains stream in and out, 
as their passengers question consciousness, surrounded by blue skies. It is a different beauty than what we found in Paris. Fountains, Notre Dame, In Amsterdam, sky, earth, water are in perfect balance, measured by human appreciation. We were driven to capture it in some way, but we know we're only still learning. not making films, Adam and John are majoring in physics and mechanical engineering, <laughs> respectively. So anyway, yeah, go ahead. I have a question slash yeah. comment on it. What's uh -huh. striking about that piece is the difference in tone from, sorry, <laughs> what's striking about that piece is the difference in tone from your, uh, from your hosts and the mm -hmm. previous piece that you showed, which is very much in the vein of traditional yes. sort of television or film production. Um, can you speak a little bit about whether or not, whether or not the the uh, format of podcasting changes that for you? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because um, I mean, and that's one of the one of the things that I'm yeah uh, sort of interested in. That uh, I mean, part of it is part of it is is the sense of what zigzag in particular is, or we hope it can be, and part of it is the idea of podcasting. And I guess they're related. Um, you know, again, we want zigzag to be as inclusive as possible, and we we. Uh, want to have different voices, different styles, different uh, different perspectives, different ideas, uh, and and you know we very much want to solicit contributions. So, in that sense, we're not going to have a house style. We don't have you know we're not trying to force a certain perspective on on what gets made uh, for Zigzag. Um, and I mean, obviously, uh, you know Adam and John could have. Done, just done this as, as their own podcast. There was no need for them to really go to ZigZag, um, except that we're off of the homepage at MIT and we're kind of, you know, MIT's podcast. We don't really offer them anything other than that, you know, because it would be very easy for them to just podcast this film themselves. So, um, uh, so that's that's kind of the ZigZag part of it. I mean, ZigZag is in ideally. Very inclusive, very open to uh, different different ideas, and and I think it kind of has to be for because of. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I think it you know because it's a podcast, it kind of and, and because it is what it's trying to be, it kind of has to be inclusive and open, because again, Adam and John could just podcast it th themselves. I mean, we're not you know we're not like. Um, you know, uh, a traditional broadcaster like a CNN, obviously, or a Discovery Channel, in that, you know, they offer CNN and, and Discovery Channel, BBC, all of those places, you know, what do they really offer? They offer uh, uh, technical expertise, uh, they offer content production, they offer a lot of equipment, but mostly they offer a distribution network. You know, they have the, the keys to the distribution network. And, uh, we don't have the keys to the distribution network. Nobody has the keys. That's the point of podcasting. 
uh, we at, at best what we have is a, pl a nice place at, on the MIT homepage, which is far less, um, you know, far less of a kind of a bottleneck or far less of a monopoly, if that's the right term, than, than you know, a, a broadcaster would have. Yeah. I think both those pieces you, you show here are really interesting, but aren't you focusing on the wrong thing? Go ahead. Isn't the really cool thing that you are able to, to capture and edit video, that, that is what is really important here. It's not really important that it's podcasting. If you would have posted these on, on YouTube, that would have been sort of the same thing. And, and in a year from now, you would have, well, uh, I don't know, but the, the really cool well, thing is, is yes and no. Well, the ca I, I actually, uh, I was going to get to that in a minute because the caption, the editing, and that's been around for a long time. Um, I mean, uh, and I can talk a little bit about my history as well. I mean, you know, ten, you know, eight or nine years ago, people were talking about how web video was going to revolutionize uh, television and and all media uh, as we knew it was going to be overthrown, and and television net networks were going to go bankrupt, or ha you know and it was going to be a completely new world. And, you know, it didn't really happen. And I'm not saying it's going to happen now either, necessarily. But, but um, I think a lot of the things that I was talking about um, were also bottlenecks, like the, uh, the streaming, the, 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 subs you know, the inability to subscribe, and, and so on. I mean, you know, YouTube and, and all of those things are... Um, I mean, obviously, that's really, yeah, that, you're right. That's really uh, uh, interesting, too, in and of itself, and it's part of the same kind of phenomena. But uh, with, with podcasting, you know, it allows you to sort of have a presence that's more ongoing instead of just having this kind of, you know, um, you know one-off kind of thing. Although, I mean, I know people, you know, will post sort of serial things on YouTube, which then... Uh, get picked up and become become uh, big as well. So again, it's not. I don't want to get wrapped up in the technology either, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say, oh, this is revolutionary. This is going to change everything, because I I tend to always resist that kind of thinking. But um, but I guess I'm comparing it to uh, other other uh, methods of delivering video over the web that always led to other problems and were not quite what they had, were initially cracked up to be. Again, I'm talking about seven or eight years ago. Um, but but uh, go ahead. But to your point, uh, the student, I was standing in line at Laverde's and I struck up a conversation with the student, John Blower, and that conversation led to this. And in that I find out that, I mean, and this is what has really changed. Here's a student that has an HDV camera, you know, that he brought to, to Europe. So he was able to shoot this with a very high quality camera which five years ago, you, you know, you, you couldn't buy an HD camera uh, for, you know, anything less than $20,000. So, and then John was able to edit the thing himself, and he actually sent us the file, you know, over the Internet. So he actually contributed to this without ever even coming into the edit suite. So, so that has really uh, changed. Um, and there's one other thing about distribution that's important is that I've been producing videos at MIT for many, many years. And I produced a documentary about Doc Edgerton that was shown at a, a single event at Kresge Auditorium. But the only people that were able to enjoy that at that time were those people sitting in that room. And now what you're able to do, and, and then, then streaming video. But 
because my background is in broadcast video, I always looked down my nose at the quality of streaming video. But the beauty of this is that you can actually um, create a, a very high quality file that if someone's patient enough to download it, you know, that, and the other thing is that they, it, it's bandwidth independent. Because even if you have a really slow uh, connection, if you're willing to wait to download the whole thing, you can then play back a very high quality file. And then one other, one other thing is that last, um, and I'm all about outreach for MIT. That's my job is to tr just try to get the message out to all of MIT's constituent groups. You know, uh, alumni, uh, prospective students, parents of existing students. Um, just all about outreach, getting the, the word out there. And also to communicate what a cool place MIT is. Because to this day, a lot of people still have a lot of misperceptions about, you know, what MIT is. Um, so last fall, we produced a very media-rich website in support of orientation. But it was all streaming video. And every day, th throughout the whole week, and it was done mainly for parents. In fact, we got email from parents thanking us for it because it allowed them to kind of stay connected to what their, their students were going through. So every single day for five or six days in a row, we kept shooting video, editing it, and uploading it, right? But um, it, that doesn't do you any good unless people find the site. So you want to create stickiness for your site. So Kim Vandiver, the dean of students, sent out an email to all the parents that we had uh, email lists for to say, come find that site. Well, if, in fact, if they did find it on a Monday, they may have looked at it and said, oh, this is pretty good. And, but they wouldn't have gone back to it. If I were producing that site today, I'd do it in podcast. Once they subscribe to it, every time you upload a piece of content, it automatically gets delivered. Um, the other thing that, that um, well, actually, let's, um, let's, I think maybe, let's hear from the, uh, the, the third member of our uh, presenters. Um, David Temez, who uh, also is a producer who uh, works on ZigZag, uh, wasn't able to be here today because he's down in uh, Rio de Janeiro at a, at a new media conference. Uh, so he double booked himself on uh, new media. But uh, he uh, sent me uh, a couple of clips that he wanted me to play. And um, one of them, this first one, uh, talks a little bit about some of the things we've been, we've been speaking about. Uh, just the, uh, the idea of, of the fact that things are fracturing and that you have all these different voices and all of these different uh, content makers and all these abilities for them to, to get, their, get their stuff out there. Um, so uh, David is somebody who uh, graduated from the Media Lab here and spends a lot of time uh, thinking and writing about, about these issues as well as uh, producing video. So uh, this is just... Uh, something that he sent me this morning from. Hi, greetings from the Rio International Film Festival. I'm down here giving a talk on macro trends in the entertainment industry and doing a panel on how new technologies are changing the industry on a global scale. And so I'm sorry I won't be able to join you for this colloquium in person, but I wanted to participate and um, I wanted to make a few comments on some of the large big trends that are shaping the industry. Um, it's been talked about a lot and probably over-talked about, but I think if we look at something like ZigZag, the video podcast, uh, an institution like MIT would have never thought of doing something like this um, maybe 10 years ago simply because the costs of distribution and production 
were out of line with the niche audience that it would reach. But I think today, with uh, digital technology and the ability to do podcasting over the Internet very efficiently, all of a sudden the economics of doing niche programming have changed dramatically. And um, what a lot of people are talking about these days is uh, this article that Chris Anderson, editor-in-chief of Wired, wrote back in October of 2004 called The Long Tail. And this evolved into his new book, which came out this year. And what Anderson suggests is that our culture and economy is shifting away from a focus on a relatively small number of mainstream products with large markets or hits at the head of the demand curve and towards a huge number of niche products in the tail. And there's no other place that this is more true than the media and entertainment space. And um, Because as the cost of production and distribution falls, there is less need to group products and services and media properties into this one-size-fits-all packages like theatrical distribution, DVDs, videotape, etc. See, because basically the Internet provides us with a distribution infrastructure that has no constraints of physical uh, space and limitations of distribution. So if you're not burning and mailing DVDs, all of a sudden you can distribute something like ZigZag um, very widely with very low cost. Narrowly targeted media is becoming economically attractive, and this trend is dramatically changing um, how organizations communicate. In his article, Anderson predicted that the demand for products and services, and I would translate that into the demand for media and entertainment and news and journalistic uh, digital assets, um, is, is potentially as big as, as the market for the mainstream products. So what, what he's saying is that the potential aggregate size of many small uh, niche products may rival that of the current market for, for, for products. And you see this uh, you see this evidence with video podcasting uh, and the media and entertainment industry. You see evidence with the film movement DVD series that basically delivers an art house film to your door once a month on DVD, which will soon, of course, uh, happen in the digital space as soon as the industry works out their digital rights management issues. Um, and look at the many niche market DVDs that are available at Custom Flix, and look at the wide number of video podcasts that are now available. And this, this, this flowering, this explosive growth of niche media uh, is a really interesting and dramatic trend, and ZigZag is very much a part of that. I think the, you know, I tend to think of it like this as, a, as someone who basically is a content producer, that uh, and this, you know, to what you were mentioning about, well, the exciting things that you can do this video, it's, you know, to begin with. Um, you know, we've had this uh, ongoing upheaval and revolution in, in film and video production. Uh, seven or eight years ago, the first mini DV cameras started coming out, which was a really cheap, high quality format that you could shoot on uh, that was essentially rivaled. Uh, cameras that cost 10 or 20 times as much up to that point. Uh, and simultaneously, you had nonlinear editing, uh, being able to edit on a desktop computer, which started out as, again, a very, very expensive uh, product, a very expensive system that it started to drop and drop and drop in cost. I mean, it would it dropped by multiples of uh, or whatever the opposite of multiples is. Um, so, that, so that, you know, you had a, you had a system like a nonlinear, nonlinear editing system that 
absolutely revolutionized how every single film, television program, or video got got uh, edited. How how post production happened uh, from major blockbuster films that might cost $100 million down to the cheapest thing. You, you know, it was, it was it, cost aside, forget cost for a minute, forget budgets. The process was revolutionary. The fact that what you could do and the time you could do it in and how you even thought about editing completely changed about uh, 15 years ago. I mean, it was really, really radical. And I lived through that because I was just getting out of grad school when that happened. So it was really, really big. Uh, but then add to that the fact that you know these systems that revolutionized how all post production happened started out costing something like you know $100,000 massive amounts of money more than 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 any of us probably are, would be prepared to spend i'm assuming well that started dropping radically to the point where now you can get a piece of software for a few hundred dollars that does that i mean that so now you've got a revolution on top of a revolution so you have this revolution in production, you have this revolution in post-production, and podcasting kind of, in my mind, completes the triple play. It's a revolution in distribution because you can distribute content, you can make sure people can find it, and you don't need a room full of servers, you don't need to keep adding servers, you don't need a broadcast studio, you don't need a, a network of, uh, a, a television network. Uh, all those things are nice, and they're always going to be a place for them. But, but you can get around that. Just the same way with Final Cut Pro or Avid Express Pro, you can get around the need to have a $100,000 editing studio. Or with uh, an HDV camera, you can get around the need to have a $60,000 broadcast camera. All of those products still exist, but the, the use of them and the need for them and exactly where their position is in the world has changed. Um, and I think podcasting, as I said, is it, it's definitely part of all of that, and it's and it's just as exciting as a lot of those other changes to me, um, in a way that that uh, web video defined more broadly was not exciting because uh, you know when 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 the web craze happened in the late '90s and everybody started you know investing all their money in in dot coms and. You know, whatever you did, suddenly you wanted to add .com at the end of it. You know, so if you were, if you had a, if you had a, a pet store, you wanted to be pets.com, and you know, if you sold, uh, you know, office supplies, you wanted to be officesupplies.com. Well, you know, as a filmmaker who was uh, getting out of grad school, you know, I thought, oh, of course, like everyone else who did what I did, oh, you know, we'll make films and we'll put them on the web, and that'll be great. And then all these problems cropped up. Uh, bandwidth problems and the server problems and distribution problems and how do you actually get people to find you problems and you know I lost interest lots of people lost interest and now years later we're finally getting to the point where where I think the the promise and the initial idea uh, is actually meaningful and 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 is going to lead to something um, but but I also wanted to just you know uh, in light of what David was talking about with this sort of multiplicity of media makers. Um, you know, I wanted to think about MIT for a minute as a content producer because, you know, that MIT is a content producer. Uh, you know, it, it produces content in the classroom, obviously. Uh, it has a huge cultural impact, both in terms of what its students go on to do and the ideas that are formed here in students' minds. 
uh, it has a huge cultural impact just in what it means to the world or what people outside of MIT think it means. Uh, the faculty here have a huge cultural impact with, with, with their writing, with uh, their, their thought, with, with uh, the ideas that can produce, get produced here, technological ideas and other ideas. Um, so MIT is, is a content producer. But when it comes to video or film or television, uh, it's really, you know, it's, it's not really been a content producer uh, because it's expensive, it's difficult. As Larry mentioned, there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of production here, both uh, official and unofficial, and obviously faculty members have created media, and there, there's a media lab, and, and there are a lot of people doing it. But, but there, there's, there's always that bottleneck of, of the distribution. Even with all of these revolutions in post-production and production, there's still the, the, the distribution bottleneck. Uh, you know, faculty participate in documentary films or television programs, but they kind of have to, you know, they, 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 they kind of have to accept what the BBC or PBS or whoever uh, wants them to do. I mean, even if they're very, very uh, powerful and you know, they're Nobel Prize winners and they have a lot of clout, they're clearly going to get a lot of respect, but they don't run the network. They don't control the means of distribution. Uh, and that's true for MIT in general. Um, you can, you know, projects that Larry has created get shown once or they get shown three times or four times or they got a limited distribution on d DVD. Uh, and that's it, because there isn't, you know, MIT worldwide cable networks. And there, and there won't be, because that is massively expensive and not what the mission of, of MIT is and, and not worth it. But, but suddenly with podcasting, MIT, which has always been a content producer, is also a, a content producer in this new space, just like... Uh, so many other institutions, so many other uh, individuals uh, around the world. And again, I'm bringing it up only because I think that's, again, what's really interesting about what's going on right now uh, with podcasting. Um, the only thing I would add to that is uh, in terms of, you know, it's, it's all about distribution. Uh, you know, ABC is already distributing Lost. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to watch it Sunday nights or whenever it's on. Um, first, it was distributed through iTunes, you could download it for a buck ninety-nine, um, and then ABC decided that uh, they would make it downloadable uh, for free from their website. The difference being, if you pay the buck ninety-nine, the commercials are taken out. If you don't pay for it, the commercials are in there. Um, but we're all in. Apple has a new uh, technology uh, called Front Row, which is, uh, and I think the direction that this is all heading in is that. You know, we all have TiVos now, but, if, you know, in a not-too-distant future, we're just going to have video servers, and what we're going to do is we're just going to download all the content that we want to watch, and uh, we're going to watch it on demand. And uh, Apple already has this technology called Front Row, which has a, it's a remote. You know, that's the thing that distinguishes, you know, you, you still want to be able to lay down on your couch and, uh, you know, get your content. But they have a, an interface where you, you'll go to your uh, server, and you'll just scroll through. Uh, it has a very elegant interface. Scroll through, and you'll 
call up, and it, you know, the, your server will also have all your personal photos, your personal videos, but it will also have all the programming that you want to watch on that given day. And if, in fact, you have to subscribe, uh, download a piece of content from an NBC, you have to go to that website and subscribe to it. So there's nothing to distinguish in terms of distribution an MIT website from an NBC website. It's the same thing. You know, you just, you're going to download the content, you're going to watch it. Um, so just sort of, I'm hoping that we can just all start sort of talking about some of this stuff. Um, but I wanted to return uh, to that idea. You know, I think, as I said, this has this sort of, there was this big the title to this, uh, Reinventing the Future of Television. And again, you know, I'm not going to predict the future. Uh, I don't feel qualified, and I don't really think anyone is qualified at this point. But, but, um, but I don't think that this is, you know, going to like end television as we know it. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's going to change it, or it is changing. It already has changed it, as you mentioned. Um, but you know, television didn't destroy radio. Uh, it didn't, you know, television didn't destroy movies, even though the studios in the 50s thought it was going to destroy movies. Uh, but it did change the nature of those two uh, other uh, media. You know, radio became, uh, radio serials were destroyed, radio stories were destroyed, radio became something different. But radio is more popular than ever. It's a, it's, it's a huge part of the media landscape. Uh, movies. Similarly, people were running around in the 50s in, in Hollywood screaming about how they were all, you know, it, it was over. Movies were over because people are just going to stay home and watch TV all day. And it was sort of true that a lot of the B movies, the serials, again, the, the stuff that people went to three or four times a week or more disappeared. But movies became events. They became a different thing. And that's, I'm assuming, where we're going to go. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, but it all relates to uh, another, another uh, big buzzword, which, which we've all talked about. And certainly, Henry is more qualified than anyone to talk about. But this idea of convergence, uh, that, that media is converging. And sometimes, I, when I hear the word converging, I also think it's diverging. And I don't even know what, quite what convergence means, um, except that you know, it's a little like that old Supreme Court definition of pornography. Like, I don't know, I don't, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And, and I think convergence is a little bit like that. You know, you sense that it's out there, you sense that things are changing, uh, but it's a little bit hard to get a hold of exactly what's happening. Um, but in, but I think Henry has defined it really well, um, and I'll quote, hopefully not wrong, not incorrectly, uh, but uh, as, Convergence is the, the flow of content across multiple media platforms, uh, the cooperation between multiple media industries, and the migratory behavior of audiences from one platform to another in search of content. Um, so, uh, you know, again, podcasting is sort of uh, the perfect form for that. Content can flow very easily from uh, producers and multiple producers uh, to consumers and, and back again. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's very easy for um, content to flow from, you know, uh, from, from movies to TV to podcasts, Lost, for example, as Larry mentioned. Um, so, you know, whatever convergence is, uh, <laughs> you know, podcasting is right in there. And uh, it's, it's part of it. And it's not necessarily the, 
you know, the uh, the end of the landscape or the beginning of it, but it's but it's but it's part of it. And um, I'm going to end with um, one other clip from David, uh, where he uh, pontificates a bit on convergence, and then maybe we can just sort of talk about. Greetings from the Rio International Film Festival. Hundreds of films from around the world are screening at the largest showcase of Latin American cinema here in Rio, where I'm uh, talking on a, on a panel about new media. And one of the things I'm talking about, which I want to share with you, is that convergence is old news. But what I wanted to do was to put zigzag in the context of what some people call convergence. Just a little bit of context here. You know, in the early 80s, as you all probably know very well, the MIT Media Lab basically convinced the early sponsors to hedge their bets and support the lab's research program. And what the lab was saying is that the entertainment, information technology, and publishing industries were going to converge as a result of digitization and everything moving to bits. Well, today, obviously, there's overwhelming evidence that the convergence trend is you know, pretty much a done deal. Uh, and Current research in media and technology indicates an acceleration of the convergence phenomena, uh, which is related to some of the things I talk about in the long tail section in the other video. And one of the things that Andy Lippman said at the Communication Futures uh, Symposium several years ago that I thought was really interesting is that in the future, eventually, every company in some way will become a communications company. Um, Radio and television and traditional media are un undergoing radical change. And um, just as the computer industry was changed by the personal computer and journalism has been changed by blogging, we're now seeing media and entertainment being changed dramatically by things like video podcasting. I mean, just consider the speed that video podcasting took off from something of the realm of geeks in 2003 to, to, to a mainstream conversation today. And I think ZigZag represents uh, this you know, thing, this trend that Andy Lippman predicted, that every company will become a communications company because when the means of production are within reach and democratized, then that means that every organization can take the process of communica communicating with their constituencies in their own hands. So ZigZag represents MIT's ability to produce their own news magazine and deliver it directly to their constituents on the web by, by bypassing the traditional media and entertainment infrastructure. So these are some of the things I'd like to encourage you all to discuss here in the colloquium of how ZigZag fits in this uh, concept of, of convergence and convergence culture, as Henry Jenkins talks about in his book, as well as Chris Anderson's The Long Tail. Sorry I can't be there, but I look forward to uh, hearing about the presentation, and uh, I believe it's being taped, and I look forward to listening to the Q&A uh, session, and uh, good luck. So um, with that, uh, comments, questions? Yeah. One of the things that you didn't really mention about the podcast that seems interesting is that it's also a random access in mm -hmm. a way that streaming or broadcast is not. Mm -hmm. That strikes me particularly by looking on your index as podcasts of the MIT commencement, for example. Right. Where uh, maybe I just want to download the whole commencement and pick and choose. Or So could you say something about how editing might be different? Because you could see mm -hmm. editing as a kind of time compression. Sure. Medium. And in 
this case, editing maybe serves a different function or does it? Well, yeah. I, I mean, streaming can be kind of random. It, it can give you the, the feeling of random access as well. I mean, it, it, except that you're deciding, you, the producer, are deciding where the clips start and end. And I think, I think the way people consume streaming video tends to be sort of similar in that, you know, you graze, you know, you watch, start watching a clip, you're not interested, you stop, you watch another one, you start, you stop. You know, what, what podcasting maybe does is it, it, um, it enables that, it kind of recognizes the reality of that and how people tend to watch video on the Internet, and it, and it enables that to a greater degree. So um, in that sense, I think I, if the, I know, does that answer your think the general state of it will be these short produced clips or is it going to gradually well, migrate toward longer well I think I think actually one of the great things about it is that it can be both you know um, again uh, like let's take commencement as an example I mean uh, we don't podcast commencement but we probably should and uh, if you uh, are like most parents and you're watching commencement you probably just want to see your child get your kid get their diploma. You don't want to watch three hours of other people getting their diploma. So you just, you know, can fast forward to the point, you know, because it's all indexed with metadata, you know, School of Engineering, you know, the B's, oh, Chris, you know. Um, that is one way to watch it. But if for some reason you uh, have a particular interest in commencement at MIT and you ha are a glutton for punishment, you could watch three hours of, of commencement. So, so I guess it can be both, and I think that is kind of, that's pretty cool. Uh, and Chris, can yeah. you show the interface off the website? Of I mean, I think you already referenced it, but one of the nice things about oh, yeah. the way in which this is formatted, that each zigzag is broken down into like four or five different stories. You, what you are able to do is to just go directly to the story that you want to see, uh, which you know, would be more... And you could also do that in streaming video, but you'd have to... So, um, as that down as that downloads, yeah, I'm I'm the, waiting the for the download. The right allows you to, to jump directly to um, uh, direct directly to the story, and you can just watch that story. You have to uh, click right in that. It hasn't. Um, yeah, I'm still waiting for the download. Yeah, that one bar there. So we have two stories downloaded. The freshman photo is the first story. The bio bash is the next story. So you you know you can just watch whatever you want to watch is basically the point, and if you again, uh, this is, I mean from a production point of view just an interesting note, uh, even though this is podcast and it's a tiny image and it's highly compressed, we shot this in HD, um, which was mainly just because we could, but um, <laughs> uh, but anyway yeah you can. Um, you can you can skip around. You can watch it any way you want. You can spend three hours or three minutes or thirty seconds grazing. In terms of length of content, uh, MIT World has been uh, pro providing. Uh, you know, this could have been videotaped and offered on MIT World. It, it provides very interesting seminars, symposia, uh, but they're all long format. They're you know an hour long. What we've done in some of these stories is for the, the energy uh, forum that took place this past spring. What we did is we cut together a ninety-second kind of. And then what we did is we put the URL up for MIT World. So people did want to dig a little deeper. But one of the things with, we're um, thinking about all the time, and we, we look for some feedback from this audience, is um, you know, this is, each uh, zigzag is between five and seven minutes long. 
And we think that that is something that somebody might take the time to digest, you know, sitting in their office or whatever. Whereas they're not going to take the time to watch. I've never watched a 60-minute program uh, on the internet. I, uh, I do skip around, but one of the things we're, we struggle with all the time is should we continue with this format or are we better off offering uh, more zigzags uh, that are shorter in length? Maybe one, one story per zigzag and have them come out every three or four days as opposed to every two weeks with five stories. There was uh, another question. Yeah. Oh, thank you. What are you using to embed the, the chapter uh, there, there's a, there are a number of software packages that, that do it. Uh, this is called Metadata Hootenanny. Hootenanny. Metadata Hootenanny. And I think it's a free download. Um, and the other question was, do you have any examples of um, somebody using an embedded producer using podcasts for serialized uh, entertainment narratives? Like well, there's an interesting example, which is, I don't know much about, so I don't want to. Um, there are, you know, they're definitely out there. There's no question about that. But, um, you know, you had mentioned YouTube. Um, there is this whole thing on YouTube that was becoming a sort of a, a, a kind of a uh, kind of a cult uh, sensation with this uh, video diary that that turned out to be a fake video diary, an actress who was portraying a character, and there was an unfolding narrative. So that that's kind of Maybe what you're talking about. Are you thinking? Are you thinking of like more of a standard sort of narrative, like, thinking like getting back to the old, you know, Perils of Pauline kind of like serialized mm-hmm. um, form of storytelling? Well, it's interesting. You know, it's too bad David's not here, or we can't conjure him up from Rio again. Uh, you know, uh, you know, he wanted to do it do it live, but he wasn't able to um, because he worked on something called the East Village a few years ago, which I. Uh, never ended up going anywhere like so many experiments in that time I was talking about in the like kind of you know six seven years ago it ended up foundering but that was kind of a uh, a soap opera set in the East Village that was very much what you're talking about uh, I I'm sure they're out there I don't know I can't give you an example of a current one um, so I've gotten into something in the last couple of years, which is just reading blogs with a, an aggregator. Before that, I had read, I had read through bookmarks, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the transition that you're talking about with podcasting, where people used to have to go out and get an article, and right. maybe it's interesting, but they forget to come back. Uh, and, and so, one of the great things about podcasting is you just you sign up for it, and it comes to you. Exactly. But the the problem that I'm having with my RSS aggregator is that uh, I. I'm too optimistic about how much I can consume. And yes. I sign up for everything, and then yep. it just accumulates. Yep. And and then it, it's a backlog, and I get overwhelmed, and I feel like, well, gee, there's eight stories there, and maybe the top one is very interesting. And if I just went to the website and and saw the top one, then that'd be great. But since there's eight, I'm not going to watch any, or I'm not going to read any. Mm-hmm. It's just I feel like I have to do them all at once, and I'm like, oh, I'll do it later. Right. I don't. So how how do you feel like, you know? Where's that going? I don't know. You know, I maybe we all maybe <laughs> maybe maybe we need aggregators for our aggregators. You know, like something to go through with all the stuff we've accumulated and winnow it again. Um, yeah, I mean, this is the problem that podcasting tries to address and certainly helps with. But it, but there's so much media out there that yeah, you how do you really select it? How do you how do you break through? 
And, um, you know, again, uh, one thing that I think is kind of interesting, which is a little bit, you know, kind of old media of me to say, but, um, you know, like kind of the position of something becomes important in that it might signal you that, that you know, it's worth watching. Like, you know, if MIT, uh, and this isn't zigzag, but if MIT did a science and technology podcast, you know, once a week, once a month, whatever, that was, uh, that was about science and technology and, and you know, cutting as research at MIT, this, the position of that in, at, you know, on the MIT website would signal to you that it was maybe worth watching as opposed to other science and technology podcasts. And that's one way that, that you know, maybe you kind of can cut through the static. I mean, I'm, and again, I'm, speak, I'm thinking narrowly, of course, about MIT. But yeah, I, I don't know, I can't help you. Be more selective, you know. You know. <laughs> majority of folks, I think, today who watch ZigZag do it in this format. They do it in this, this is called uh, Quick Start. And they're not actually downloading it to their, most of them watch it in this format. Uh, and what we've, we've had a lot of support from the folks who, who uh, program the MIT homepage. They've been, you know, collaborators with us in trying to get this out here. So one of the things they've done is uh, whenever we've produced a new episode, they have spotlighted it somehow. But to your point, you're right. That's uh, we don't have a lot of. I don't. I don't know. I think from the, I think our MIT viewers, most of them watch it. Um, they don't actually download it. They actually watch it in this uh, uh, in this format. And which essentially feels like streaming. It you know, is, it doesn't exactly. feel that different than than watching streaming video. At that point, it just becomes kind of a, a te- you know, a technical differentiation. I mean, I, most people who watch this aren't going like, oh wow, it's asynchronous delivery. <laughs> and it's somewhat of a coup, actually, to have a, a podcast link on the homepage pointing to this. And that will change as more podcasts become available, podcasts produced by students or by department stall. When you click on then that podcast link, it would go to an index page of all the variety of podcasts you can access. But for now, we're kind of the only game in town, so we, we fortunately have that link. I'm hoping that this becomes popular enough that uh, that there is eventually a zigzag link on the homepage that says zigzag, and then perhaps they would uh, change the color of it every time a new episode was available. That's wishful thinking on our part, but that's what I'm going to Two questions. Distribution aside, is there an emerging uh, identifiable generic characteristics to podcasting? Is the first question. Mm-hmm. That's asking me to look at a really big uh, body of work and make a general generalization, and I don't feel prepared to to, to do that. Um, I mean, you know, the uh, the the video blog, the video diary is clearly a huge, huge genre within podcasting. Uh, you know, as opposed to sort of the video news magazine, which is a little more produced, like what we're what we're doing. Um, but again, people are doing all sorts of different things with it. Um, you know, there there are the video magazines too, the Rocket Booms, and and uh, uh, you know there are the podcasts of the podcasts where they take the best of you know video podcasting and and you know digest it for you so that you only watch what they say is the best. Um, so I don't know. I don't really have I don't really have an answer for you. I'm it not, just seems that the direction of your discussion today is that what's unique about podcasting is the distribution model mm-hmm. because even I mean we 
what you started was this is not about the death of television, and I wholeheartedly agree with you there. Um, and, and your second point was that this is distinct from video on the web, which is, sorry, evil bunnies, um, video on the web, which is about, uh, <laughs> has typically been imagined as you know, a streaming experience, it's right. clunky and it drops out and whatever. And you know, YouTube is characterized by that. Mm -hmm. But what, what I'm interested in is, is are, are these two things, this question about how we can talk about podcasting and presume to talk about something, well, we can talk about podcasting as something that is distinct in any way other than mm -hmm. the fact that it's, it's a, a, a RSS feed, it's a single kind of chunk, it's, I mean, it's essentially, it's the news magazine, it's the short film, it's the discrete program that is delivered to mm -hmm. the desktop, and that seems to be what makes podcasts well, I think, distinct or unique right. in, in this discussion. Right, I think, I think, um, yeah, and I don't want to, you know, again, I'm, I'm not really like uh, a technologist in the sense that I, I, uh, I mean, you know, I, I love sort of, uh, you know, setting up setting up servers, or that I can even yeah. tell you the best way to set up your server to become a podcaster. But, 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 you know, the very fact that it's so easy to do and it's so easy to distribute, I think, has a lot to do with what people are doing with it. And if and if there is something that's distinct or unique about podcasting that's emerging, yeah. it's related to that. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons that that uh, video blogging is a big use of podcasting because, I mean, it's very open. You know, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like what I said. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's the distribu distribution equivalent of making production really easy, making editing really easy. You, you don't have to invest a huge amount to distribute this stuff, you know, financially or time-wise or even thought-wise sometimes. I mean, so, I mean, obviously you can. You can, but it can be very immediate, very off-the-cuff, very just, I'm throwing it out there. And so this is my second question, yeah. which is also a question for you, Jeff. Um, because there is there is a serialized one that, that there is a serialized podcast going around that was actually uh, it was a serialized story that was cut into three minute chunks, and it happened to be lit by a podcast that was posted on YouTube and made available from MySpace. And, and so here we we get this again. What's distinct about podcasting mm -hmm. is a distribution method. So my second question is, why do we appropriate the language for television, mm -hmm. the language in which we talk about television, in order to understand this as a, from, a, from a cultural perspective? I mean, why is the cultural logic to talk about, to have this sort of discussion, one that frames it as, well, what's going to happen to television? Mm -hmm. Because it, it actually resembles the short film mm -hmm. more than it would seem to resemble television, except when it's the talking head or the right. news magazine. Right, and so I'm, I'm I'm always interested in these discussions about why we talk about the frame in the context of what's what's going to be the future of television. Mm -hmm. Someone, if you can just speak to why you think we, we adopt you know the, this 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 discourse about television mm -hmm. when we're talking about podcasts. Well, I mean, first of all, it's because I mean we're we grew up in a in a world dominated by television, and and that's our experience uh, growing up, and so uh, you tend to relate what's happening to what you know. But we didn't grow up without film or cinema. Well, and but yet, and yet we always find this in a, in a context about television. Right, but it's interesting. I mean, I think that may well, and I don't. You know, I'm not going to presume to have the full answer here. But I think, but it's but it's interesting to me to relate what you just said to the the sort of aside that I made about, go, you know, uh, the the filmmakers, the film, the Hollywood producers who are running around screaming about television 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, to them, film meant something a little different than it means to us. Film was not so much an event, you know, where you spent 20 bucks to go out and watch this film that had been, 
you know, was this sort of massive piece of effort and work and, and expense on, on a studio's part. Yeah. There were, there were you know, B-movies and C-movies and D-movies and serials, and, and it was just kind of a part of, you know, moving images were movies. And then moving images didn't, you know, when television came around, moving images weren't movies, they were also television. So then movies became something different. And, you know, the only reason to ex explore podcasting in relation to television is the extent to which, you know, when we sit in front of a laptop and watch a podcast, it feels kind of like the experience that we've had many, many times sitting in front of a television watching moving images. Yeah, and that's, and I, 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 so I don't mean to die in discussion, so if anyone wants me to shut up, I will. Um, and, that's, and that's cool, it's just that, uh, I mean, the point you made before was that what, you know, the, this, this media server, video server, you know, wonderful experience, you know? And to be perfectly honest, it's crap, because it's not, that, not your idea, but that experience. Because in terms of distribution model, this actually resembles film. It's discrete text, it's unlinked, we get one, we get the other, we do the lineup ourselves, whereas the television experience is, is one that is determined by some selection being made for you, you buying into a menu of, of options. And I think that the struggle at the moment when we try to look for alternatives to, to television is that there is no linking text. So there is no context, there is nothing that presents a, a menu. And so if you go and get the democracy player, which you can use as an RSS feed and a, and a BitTorrent um, uh, aggregator, and it'll suck down all of this stuff, and then you can press play. And, you know, there are 268 programs lined up on my hard drive at the moment. But it's, it, it doesn't replicate the television experience because there's no linking discourse, there's no juxtaposition, there's no selection going on. And so I'm always interested why we talk mm -hmm. about television because in terms of distribution, it resembles film. Well, I, I agree with you, but except for one, for one thing, that in some ways it resembles television. And I, I, I be, yeah. because, you know... Uh, when I watch a podcast, if I'm watching it on my laptop or on my iPod, I'm by myself. You know, I'm flipping around. I'm looking at one. I'm looking at another. When I'm watching television, I'm by myself or with my wife, maybe, and we're flipping around with a remote, watching a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and she's getting mad at me because I'm flipping too much or whatever. Um, and so in that sense, the, experience, the physical experience is kind of similar, although I agree with what you're saying about the discrete pieces of, 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 of content, you know, and especially like short films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's episodic. Right. Where it's on each podcast, you know, essentially you're going to have content delivered at different intervals. And I think for us, the most familiar model to compare that to is television. Right. Regardless, you know, regardless of what the content of the show is, it's something, unless it's like a one-shot where you're going to have that experience for returns. Yeah, and it's it is a blending. I mean, it's not like, and again, I, you know, I it's not going to replace television. It's not like oh, this is the new TV or anything like that at all. And and there are a lot of ways it is like short films because because, um, yeah, it's it's it starts, it stops, it's three minutes long or five minutes long or fifty minutes long or whatever, and yeah, so it's it's something it's its own thing, and it's going to have. I'm not going to predict how television is going to change. To find a new space, if you know, to fill, as podcasting starts taking over. Well, like for example, news. You know, um, nobody really watches the evening news anymore at 6:30. I mean, nobody. I do actually when I'm home, but um, <laughs> but I'm you know I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I don't know why I do it. But anyway, um, 
you know, it, it, it used to be like this sort of big ritual to watch the, the 6.30 News, to watch Walter Cronkite or Tom Brokaw. And it was something that was a unifying experience for, uh, at least for middle-class Americans. And that's not true anymore at all. You know, very few people uh, under the age of 50 or 60 get their news on a regular basis from the evening news broadcasts. So that doesn't mean we don't get news, and it doesn't mean that we, uh, you know, necessarily know less than, than our, our parents did. It just means that, the, you know, how we get it and what the evening news means and what other news sources means has changed. So, yeah. And, and again, why, you know, why is film like that? Because it is like that. It's like that because of things like television. You know, te- film found a new, way, new reason to be, which is to bring you these experiences that you, know, you wouldn't otherwise have to take you to some other place that you wouldn't be able to go just by sitting in your living room watching television or some other kind of content. And so, yeah, I, I agree. Well, you know, you just you, you said something earlier about the community. You know, and, and, you know, when I was growing up, you know, Sunday night uh, nine o'clock, everybody was sitting in front of their TV watching the Ed Sullivan Show. Okay, and then, then and my father-in-law is over for dinner last night, and he has to run out of the house to go home to watch Dancing with the Stars at eight o'clock, and mm-hmm. and it was any and that took precedence over having dinner with his daughter. Um, and I, I felt like buying him a TiVo at St. Paul. You know, there's uh, technologies that allow you to not have to be. A certain place at a certain time, but 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 there was in terms of television, there is that sense of community um, that when you were sitting down in front of the news, everybody else you see all these blue lights from all these other homes. Now that's still, and that's one of the things that sports broadcasting will continue to provide because you want to experience that live at the same. You don't want to watch, you know, the Super Bowl or whatever. You know, three hours later when it's already been decided. So there is that communal experience that you're all watching the same thing happen at the same time. And if you're in apartments and you're watching the Red Sox, you can hear the screams coming from, because we're all, we're all doing that together. Um, and that's one of the things that television will continue to provide. 
But in terms of community, one of the most popular webcasts that we ever did was uh, we stuck a camera on a, on a hawk nesting site. We called it Hawk Cam. We did it a couple of years now. And what was amazing about it was the community that was created around that. It was just a static camera watching. We, we, we showed the fledgling, uh, the maturation process of, of hawks from uh, eggs to fledglings. And we had a, uh, a blog that went along with it. And people were, you know, and there was this whole community throughout the world that were all talking to each other about where did they go and, you know, when do you think they're going to fly and, um, and that's just a, but then that's kind of combining uh, two mm -hmm. technologies, the mm -hmm. webcast with, with the blog. But there was a community created around, you know, around that single frame. <coughs> I don't know, I came late, so I hope I'm not missing okay. One interesting trend that can happen because of podcasting and we follow also what happens with music is more of the customization, personalization on demand, which is, I think, going to change completely the way we, you know, consume TV. So, you mm -hmm. know, like, Pandora, for example, in music today. So I say, I like these songs, that's all I know. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, I'm, I'm ready to consume, give me everything you, know, you can give me the trailer. Mm -hmm. So with TV, it's going to be, you know, I can say I like this sitcom now, you know, all this database is going to be out there. Yep. And I'm going to start to consume a lot of things that are just related. And today there's a lot of algorithms and people that do stuff with music, which is just using chunks mm. of, the, of the song. So it's not really the whole song. You know, I just like this two seconds piece and this four seconds piece and they really edit so it's also about the editing that's really changing the landscape of editing because computers can do like real time editing based on the profile that I prefer so you can take all the sitcoms ever and create like my ultimate sitcom or <laughs> right and that's going to really change the way programming looks like I don't know if it's going to catch it's, you know mm -hmm. sometimes the result is very weird but right. it's definitely something that te technology enables something right and, and the, just the fact that you know audiences are so fragmentary and so much smaller. And, and that relates to budget as well. I mean, you know, ZigZag doesn't cost much to produce. It costs almost nothing for us to put on the web. And the audience is, as I said, you know, it's, it's people at the MIT community, students, prospective students, and alumni. Not a huge audience. Not really a huge audience at all. But it doesn't really matter because we don't have to spend a lot. If we had to invest a huge amount of money in infrastructure, to support the distribution of ZigZag, we would we would never do it because yeah. it wouldn't be possible. But from IP point of view, like, do you allow other people to use it as their content or something? Do you have any specific protection? No, you mean well, no. Anyone can look at it. I mean, it, the only in terms of people submitting content, I mean, yeah, we we don't take anything, you know. But um, but yeah, there's no there's no limit in terms of who can watch it at all. If I make my own newscast right now, so am I just going to use five seconds? Well, the, the reality is we couldn't stop you. <laughs> Larry? <laughs> no. I mean, that's, that's the big, big difference between... We, we support um, educational initiatives at MIT, like the Singapore MIT Alliance, and we provide uh, streaming uh, content of faculty lectures. <coughs> and they are okay with it because we stream it. Um, and, and so there, there's still some... Uh, you know, uh, maintenance of, of the content. They still control the content. Although, you know, there are many, many ways of actually downloading streaming content. It doesn't uh, take, you have to be that clever to right, do that. Right. So, uh, but, but, um, but, the, but to your point, you know, we're putting out 
uh, you know, we're putting out pictures of the MIT president, we're putting out pictures of MIT students. You know, people could take their digital files. It's, it's just like sending a digital photo to a friend. People can take it and do all kinds of things with it that we can't control. So that's part of it, too, obviously, yeah. And that's something to be concerned about, you know. Um, but so far, we haven't seen anything used in any you know, offensive way. So you got, there's a challenge. No. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You can answer that better than no, I, but I haven't. No. Yeah. But but we, well, this thing has it, it's this thing is still evolving. We have had we've had people um, send us email. We you know we have a comment section, and they 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 tip us off to something of interest that's happening. We'll go out and shoot it, you know. Or uh, but no, we've uh, you know and uh, no, it's not been commercialized in any way. We haven't you know no, we haven't been approached by Nokia, for example, to yeah. say, would you please show. Um, I don't. I don't. What I, um, you know, what we're hoping to do with something like Zigzag is to, in fact, kind of just develop a brand that people know that when they go to it, they're going to see something of interest. Beyond that, we haven't defined what that might look like. But we we want to have student participation, student pieces, and this is all about the MIT community for us. But but to your point about you know one of the things that's happening with things like. Um, um, TiVo is that they are now, you know, they have TiVos that will edit out commercials. The, one of the big questions is how does this content, if we're, we're, we successfully are able to edit out the commercials, how does the content get produced? How do people, where does that revenue come from? And now what the, what the, the TV uh, serials are doing is that they're actually, because people are editing out commercials, they're actually inserting commercials into the body of the program. Sounds like you're trying to sort of make it a, a new TV channel, sort of like that, even if it's not a traditional piece and, and you have talking heads and it's very professional production in every sense. What's interesting is to look at the, uh, what say, the, the process that in the other direction, because most video blogs aren't that professional as you Right, exactly. Uh, but if, most are very low tech in their sense. And if you look at uh, corporate America, and if you look at uh, large institutions, they start to borrow the language from uh, these low-tech video blogs. For instance, maybe you've seen uh, Ford's uh, Bold Moves, They're, they have this huge campaign right now, uh, where they have a, a new website where they uh, publish... Uh, I know one of the producers of that, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's not a video blog, it's not a podcast, yeah. but it's sort of similar. And they use yep. the language from yep. video. And that's really interesting to see mm -hmm. sort of the, the, that. The yeah, well, I mean, anything that it is uh, successful or perceived as successful and sells cars, you know, they will absolutely the do. piece we saw by David Temes, he could, you know, that could be a podcast that he posts every day. 
you know, and that's, they could, they, you know, and that's very low tech. You know, you turn the camera on, it spoke for a couple minutes, and then that was it. But it's interesting to see how, how, how these giant corporations use the low tech mm -hmm. tone and language. Oh, okay, yes. So to, to, to mimic yes. Yes. The, the language among the general video podcast community. <laughs> so other, other questions, comments, thoughts? Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming. And um, one, uh, just one last thing, something I said at the beginning, you know, we really would love to have uh, student participation, student submissions. So we're very, very open to uh, content. I mean, I know, again, anyone, any one of you can go out and do your own podcast, you know, and I, I say that knowing, I, I say that knowing full well that you can, but uh, this is a, uh, you know, it's an MIT podcast. It has, as I said, what we can really offer is a nice position on the MIT homepage, and we'd love to get participation.